Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome back to Still Watching, the television podcast from Vanity Fair. We cover entire seasons of the hottest shows on TV, and right now we are diving deep into House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel series on HBO. I'm Josh Wiggler, and to discuss House of the Dragon Episode 3 with me today while Richard Lawson's away on assignment, I am joined by Vanity Fair senior editor Hillary Busis. Hillary, hello! Hey, Josh. Um, I, I hope that I can be an able replacement while Richard is gallivanting around Venice. Yes, uh, I thought that he was in the Stepstone, so you just clarified something for me. I thought it was a much more violent struggle that he was in the middle of. It's it's a similar climate, I think. Uh-huh. Crab feeder feels like the subject of uh, some sort of uh, big, fancy Venice film. I wouldn't be surprised if they're in, like, the new in Yuri 2. <laughs> I think that that's right. I think that's right. Um, we are talking about the third episode of House of the Dragon here on Still Watching. Second of his name, a little confusing title. Shouldn't second of his name be episode two, Hillary? You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't mean, have a good. I don't have a good response. I I'm just sorry. feel like the. It's just so confusing anyway. Trying to track your Rhaenyra from your Rainies that I feel like second of his name on episode three is just harder than it needs to be. A little bit, just slightly harder than it needs to be. Yeah, it's it's a lot of emphasis to put on a baby. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For sure. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Well, there's a lot of pressure on the child uh, here in House of the Dragon as at long last, it's all he ever wanted. Viserys Targaryen, he's got a son, Mazel Tov, uh, to Viserys Targaryen. <laughs> Mazel Tov, as, as they said in Old Valyria. Mm -hmm, yeah, I believe it was an ancient Targaryen tradition. Uh, as we have, uh, we have a new Targaryen in the mix with Aegon II. After a three-year time jump here between episodes two and three, and we've got a lot to get into. It's not just the arrival of Aegon II, second of his name, the titular. It's also a big battle-heavy episode here on House of the Dragon, episode two, as we are getting our first taste of war against the crab feeder here, Hillary. What did you think of episode three? You know, I got to say, I, I like palace intrigue a lot more than big battle scenes um, just because I find it more interesting. I don't I don't know. I don't know that the Crab Feeder War has really done that much for me just because we don't really know who any of these people are yet. And so getting invested in this uh, conflict that even Viserys and everybody else in King's Landing seems to be like not very concerned about like, right. it, it feels like a lot to ask us to invest in it at this juncture in the show when we're only in episode three yeah it maybe tells you something if even Viserys is like oh let's not think about the war we don't have to talk about that like the war is not that important yeah the succession drama feels like so much yeah. more central eyes on me to... eyes on me says Viserys yeah yes yeah, it, it feels it feels a little if we're not going to have a narrative that's going from place to place to place right away and we're going to have this kind of more more cloistered more focused show than suddenly having our attention split between these two far-flung locales when it doesn't necessarily even seem like the fight matters that much to the main storyline um i don't know yeah. maybe i'm maybe i'm not giving them enough credit but yeah. uh i gotta say you when i saw the, the the crab eaters like guts and torso i was not <laughs> 
I was not like, oh man, what a what a fight. I was like, all right, so now I don't have to deal with this guy anymore. Yeah, it's just two weeks of talking crab feeder, basically. I guess uh, mild spoiler alert, but you watched the episode. He's dead. Uh, no coming back <laughs> from that. So crab feeder taken care of, feed him to the crabs. Perhaps going to be surprising, I think, to some people. It's like, oh, well, they're really setting up the crab feeder as the season-long bad guy. Uh, no, he gets taken out rather quickly, uh, as it is in the book. Uh, in Fire and Blood uh, that this one is based on. The war against the crab feeder, Hillary, really takes place little more than a paragraph. Okay, that's uh, what I was wondering. I was wondering if we got chapters of this. It's really, really quick. And the the big battle sequence that we get at the end of this episode is yet another really good example of the way in which the show can embellish uh, what's in the text because it's a historical text. You know, it's pretty dry, or at least it's fairly sparsely written. I don't think it's fair to call it dry. Um, and there's a lot of room to to add and infuse uh, more drama into the scenes. The way it's written in the book is eff- effectively yada, yada, yada. At last, when Damon came face to face with Kragus Crab Feeder, he slew him single handed and cut off his head with Dark Sister. And that's how it's written. And you don't even see that, which is ironic enough, is the actual killing of the Crab Feeder happens off screen. The one detail that George R. R. Martin actually gives you in the book of how this battle played out. Oh, that's that's an interesting choice. There's actually a really great illustration in Fire and Blood from uh, Doug Wheatley, who does the illustration, the artwork for the book, that is Damon Targaryen fighting a very different-looking version of the crab feeder as he uh, he has swung his sword through. The, the crab feeder is headless, and this tiny little crab is just in the foreground watching. Uh, and I, I think maybe it was just too iconic on its own. They're like, we can't, repl- we can't replicate that. The book did it better. We shouldn't even try. Do you think the crabs are, like, on, are the crabs on the crab feeder's side? I mean, I guess so, since they're being fed. Yeah, who's going to feed them now? I think that they're... Uh, they're <laughs> they have to fend for themselves. They definitely had a, yeah, they definitely had some skin in the game here, I think. Literally, uh, it was the people that they were eating. Uh, <laughs> so I think uh, they're probably pretty disappointed, would be my guess, yeah. And I will say that the the design of the crab feeder was cool. I liked his, his weird, scary mask. Yes. I, like, we can... I can acknowledge that. Yeah. So uh, R.I.P. Crab Feeder. We hardly knew you. Uh, no dialogue from the Crab Feeder. Just uh, We're certainly talking about him a lot for somebody that I actively don't care about. Yes. Yes. I feel like uh, I feel like Crab Feeder will live long in uh, whatever the Valhalla of memes uh, is called. Uh, <laughs> We will we will continue talking about that. We will, of course, continue talking about this episode. We have feedback from everybody. We want to get feedback from you all season long. You can write in stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'll read some feedback at the end of this episode. We will recap this episode of Second of His Name, House of the Dragon, episode three, just after this very quick break. Stay tuned. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, Hillary, when we begin, uh, we do begin at the Stepstones. We are once again, it's a second episode in a row Beginning with the crab feeder, just doing his crab feeding thing, feeding someone to crabs. And uh, also uh, crucifying a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that's something that uh, I think... That's uh, cool. We all, we all love crucifixion it's, on this. It's just, it's I'm what, still watching. It's what we tune into the podcast for, folks. Uh, as the crab feeder, yeah, he's crucifying this pirate, this very surly pirate who is, uh, who is reading the crab feeder for filth. Uh, and the the crucific the crucifixion is interrupted when Damon Targaryen rolls into town on Dragonback. This is finally Fire and Blood showing up here on House of the Dragon. As last week, we got a little bit of a tense dragon standoff on Dragonstone. This week, we finally get dragon action uh, as Damon is going to roll into town, and uh, for the first but not last time in this episode, try to single handedly end this conflict. Um, Hillary, as somebody who you said you are more interested in the palace intrigue of this show than the action scenes, how are you feeling when the first sequence of the episode was very, very action heavy? Was there any part of you that was like, okay, at least we're delivering on the dragons at this point? 
Oh no, for sure. And like, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not made of stone. Seeing a giant fire the crab feeder beast, might be. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing a giant fire-breathing beast, you know, wreaking havoc on a bunch of innocents. Of, I mean, not innocent. I guess they're soldiers, but on a bunch of people, you know, burning a bunch of people alive. Like, yeah, oh, yeah it's enjoyable. It's, it's what we came here for. That's why this show is so expensive. We want to see it on the screen. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, uh, you you do mention in your uh, recap on VF.com right now um, that he that uh, Damon is. Uh, attacked with flaming arrows and maybe sort of wisely decides not to test the theory that uh, fire can't kill a dragon when he finally yes. does wind up retreating. I I do wonder, is that is that a thing for all Targaryens? Was that just Daenerys that one time when she gave birth to the dragons? Like, can are they actually impervious to fire? Is that this something is that we will see? hotly contested. Uh, I think the answer tends to be no. And you look at Jon Snow in the first season of Game of Thrones, there's one point where he's uh, really having a hard time with fire. He has a, a, a little bit of a skirmish with one of the um, the uh, the resurrected uh, members of the Night's Watch who has right. been White Walkerified. Uh, so it's not a it's not a uniform rule across the board. I think heat resistant more than uh, a, a heat immunity. Uh, okay, I think flame retardant. Yeah, I think okay. so. I think I think what uh, what is definitely the case, and we tragically saw this in every sense of the word tragically in Game of Thrones, is that the dragons are not impervious to being skewered. I think skewering uh, does <laughs> kill a dragon. So enough yeah, arrows would probably best, do the trick. Yeah, that's the best. Uh, if you're going to try to kill one, I guess. Stick them with the way. pointy end is, I believe, the, the old parlance uh, around mm. Game of Thrones. Um, so, yeah, he flies away. There's a great sort of blink and you miss it moment when, um, well, first of all, there's the scene when this this one guy is rooting for Damon and yes, Prince Damon, I'm so happy you're here. And then he just gets crushed uh, <laughs> by the dragon, which is, uh, I don't know, it was it was kind of, I don't know if, if it's just a, a lack of, um, this, these are such intense shows, Hillary, that you take the laughs where you can get them. But I definitely had like a pretty dark laugh at this poor guy getting crushed underfoot. It does remind you how, you know, we are so focused on the nobility, how awful it is to be a peasant in this world, regardless of who's in charge and how yes. your life is just kind of shit, uh, no matter who's on the throne. Mm -hmm, pretty much. So I think uh, really driving that point home. The other thing I really enjoyed about this opening sequence is Damon is on Caraxes. He's on the bloodworm and he's flying around. He's calling out for the crab feeder and he says, crab feeder, where are you? I'm going to feed you to your own crabs. And then he's <laughs> surprised that the crab feeder doesn't show himself. Like maybe a better sales pitch you need uh, to work on here, Damon. <laughs> like, OK, I'm going to hide for three years. I'm going to make sure he does not feed me to my crabs. Yeah, I was surprised, honestly, that there was such a big jump uh, between last episode and this episode. I understand that there's a lot of story that they're trying to get through um, in this one season, but I still wouldn't have thought that we would necessarily just kind of do away with three years or two and a half or however long it was in the blink of an eye. Yeah, so this is a really different thing uh, that House of the Dragon is doing versus Game of Thrones. You know, in, in Game of Thrones, we are spanning however many years that the whole show spans, and it's on a pretty linear path. Here in just three episodes of House of the Dragon, we have spanned three and a half years already. Uh, so it was about a half year between episodes one and two. And just within the space of episodes two and three, and, and really at this opening scene in episode three, and then the very next scene that you get is a three-year time jump. Um, Allison and Viserys are married. She is the queen. They have a son. Uh, it is his second birthday. She is pregnant. She has another child on the way. Um, you were shocked by this, Hillary. Are you are you surprised by the pace of it so far? It is. I mean, I remember I know going I knew going in that uh, the younger some of the younger cast members are going to be replaced by yep. older ones. And so, you know, given that I should have been expecting it. But still, it just it does sort of feel like we just met everybody. And now, you know, they're aging before our eyes and we'll have like it's it's like seasons of the crown compressed or something um, yeah. and in the second the second half of the show might be kind of an entirely different show yeah i think that that's one of the reasons uh, not just the the shared involvement of matt smith that i think this show has gotten a lot <laughs> of comparisons to the crown is there is this sort of generational idea and i i think that um we're already skipping through time and we haven't done recasting yet so it might give you an indication of how far spanning the storyline is uh on this show so I'm curious to know how that's working for people, and especially if you out there are uh, either excited about or dreading the big time jumps that are going to occur 
that make it so that uh, Millie Alcock is not going to be Rhaenyra anymore. Emma Darcy is going to be showing up to play that character. Is that going to work for you? Is that something you are nervous about? Please write in. We would love to hear from you on that. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Um, but we're here, Hillary, in this three years later time period. There's a big celebration. It is Aegon's second name day. They're going to head to the Kingswood nearby and have this very exciting, lavish celebration for... Now, clearly uh, none of them have watched Game of Thrones or they would know never to attend a birthday, a wedding. Yes. <laughs> hey, bar mitzvah. No bar mitzvahs. Um, uh, get, get out of here with all of that. Uh, yeah, there I are think- no celebrations that turn out well. Everything should be very dry. You should just really (laughs) go about your day as cleanly as possible. Nothing celebratory here in Westeros. Uh, Totally, totally agreed. Um, But Viserys wants to take his mind off of all of the politicking and everything that's going on in the Stepstones. No one is really letting him. Uh, We see see Tyland Lannister here, uh, who is going to be the first of two Lannister twins. Uh, New Lannister twins in the House of the Dragon here, Hillary. Uh, step aside, Jamie and Cersei. We've got a we've got a new Lannister in the building, and a, a Lindsay Lohan situation in that they are both played by the same actor. Indeed, yes. Uh, Jefferson Hall is the actor who is playing uh, Tywin Lannister, who you see in this first scene. He's imploring Viserys to think about if there was ever a time to turn your attention to the Stepstones. It's been going on for three years. We got to do something about it. So he's really making that pitch. Um, but it's going to be Jason Lannister that we spend a lot more time with later in the episode. Uh, I was surprised to learn this, Hillary, that uh, the actor who is playing these two Lannister siblings has already been in the Game of Thrones universe. This is oh, his, really? his third character in the Game of, the Th- uh, the Game of Thrones universe. Oh, yeah, so he's, he's, he's the Justin Thoreau to, mm-hmm. Sex the, to Sex and the City of the Game of Thrones universe. Yeah, uh, he is playing. So he's playing two distinct characters on this show. He also played Sir Hugh of the Vale in the first season of Game of Thrones, a really small part, uh, but important, uh, not insignificant in the first couple of episodes of the show. He's part of some of the Who Killed John Aaron mystery uh, in the early going of the show. So, uh, you know, it's not without precedent. Dean Charles Chapman, who played Tommen on Game of Thrones, he had played a different Lannister previously on the show before he got recast as the king. Uh, so I guess the the throne, though, goes to Jefferson Hall for playing three distinct characters. I don't know who's coming for that crown anytime soon. Uh, but interesting trivia. Some interesting trivia behind the scenes here. Um, so Viserys is going to head out to the King's Road alongside Allison, alongside their children. But Rhaenyra is missing in action, and they do not know where she is, and they need to round her up. She is uh, by her favorite tree, Hillary, just reading her favorite book, as Rhaenyra is wont to do. And listening to a song that I am sure has some greater significance that I did not catch. Yes. I was hoping uh, that you could maybe decode that. This bop under the dragon's eye, uh, has that been earwormed for you yet? Or need, you need to hear it a few more times? Uh, it's it it's like, not exactly the Reigns of Castamere, but it is catchy. Not yet, not yet. Uh, yeah, he is seeing, so this bard who is apparently named Samwell, uh, because if you're in Westeros, you have like one of five names, I suppose, <laughs> is how this works. Uh, he's, he's talking about she fled her ships, and, uh, she fled with her ships and her people, her heart broke. The, the song that he's seemingly telling uh, the song he's seemingly singing tells the tale, I think, once again of Nymeria, who we've heard about on the show already. This is the same story that Allison and Rhaenyra were talking about back in this same setting uh, in the in the premiere of the show. Um, and she's so, also who Arya Stark will eventually name her direwolf after. Exactly. Yeah. And she's also potentially, depending on where HBO wants to go with this, she is at the center of one of these other successor shows. 10,000 Ships is the name of that one. And it's the the tale of this warrior queen, Nymeria, who is effectively the founder of Dorne. I think she's like credited as one of the real founding figures in, in Dorne. I think that her story at least maps kind of aspirationally for someone like Rhaenyra, an unlikely conqueror, someone who's a, a unifying force who has a big struggle. Um, I think that a lot of the Nymeria story maps onto where Rhaenyra is positioned right now as the heir to the Iron Throne. But even from her vantage point, she feels like it's a long way to get there. Yeah. Um, and certainly not a coincidence that it's a female hero. Exactly. 100%. So, And I think also not coincidental that we're once again getting that story or a version of that story underscoring a scene of Rhaenyra and Alicent together in this exact place where we first really saw them being really close, being close friends, 
And they are worlds apart at this point, as Allison is now Rhaenyra's mother-in-law, and it's gotten awkward. It's gotten a little uncomfortable. Oh, man, yeah. I, I, there must be a special pain of seeing your father continually impregnating your former best friend. Yeah, uh, that is definitely one of the circles of hell. I'm not sure which one, but it's in there. It's in there for sure. Um, so Allison is trying to, to encourage Rainier. Come on, let's go. Your, your father is waiting. The hunt is going to be fun. Uh, and, uh, Rainier is saying, is this, uh, is this the King's command? Is this yours? She says it's the King's command. And Rainier says, well, then, uh, I'm coming, you know? Uh, and Allison says, it doesn't have to be this way. None of this needs to be this way. How are you feeling about Allison and Rainier's relationship at this point, Hillary? Are you are you um, sympathetic to where Allison seems to be coming to Rainier with where she's trying to say we could we could still be friends. It doesn't have to be as tense as it's been. Well, it's it's funny. It does kind of seem like nothing has changed between like in their dynamic in the even though there's been such a large like amount of time since we last saw them. It kind of seems like they're frozen in where they were at the end of the last episode at this like point of betrayal. It seems like it's still very fresh, um, yep. which uh, feels understandable, especially if you're a teenage girl. That's that's going to be a tough, <laughs> a tough uh, thing to swallow, a tough thing to get over. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Three years might not be enough time. Uh, so they are going to get on to the King's Road. It's a very awkward carriage ride to the King's Wood. Viserys is like, oh, look at my look at my son. Here's Aegon Rhaenyra. You're going to be a great mother sooner or later. You're going to make me a proud grandfather. Uh, and Rhaenyra really wants nothing to do with this. This will be a very big theme throughout the episode uh, that she's she's having a hard time with her father. She is especially having a hard time with her father very clearly wanting to uh, marry Rhaenyra off, uh, that he is fielding a lot of different proposals for the potential heir to the Iron Throne, or at the very least, the princess uh, here in Westeros. Rhaenyra wants to hear absolutely none of it. Yes, feels uh, feels very much like the the old trope of the you know defiant princess um, that we've seen. I think in a lot of uh, fairy tale, medieval esque fantasy stories before. Um, Although I don't know, given given how young people are betrothed in this particular world that we're you know talking about getting, I mean this is a this happens later in the episode that we're talking about betrothing potentially a two year old. It's kind of right. surprising that she's managed to survive to seventeen without having a marriage. Right. Yeah, it's a coup. Uh, seventeen feels late in the game here in in Westeros. <laughs> she's already Gosh. drying up. Yeah. Yeah, the, old the, maid. Oh yeah, uh, put her in the tower. Yeah, the the whole <laughs> thing with marry your two year old brother, by the way, is just, <laughs> just too far, too far. Game of Thrones. Um, okay, so we reach the we reach the camp. We're seeing all these people who are who are who are here for this celebration. Um, you get your first sighting of the aforementioned Lannister twins, a bunch of other lords and ladies, the the strong family. Uh, who I am a big fan of, uh, Sir Lionel Strong, Lord Lionel, who has been giving uh, Viserys a bunch of um, uh, his counsel over the course of these past two episodes. He's here, uh, and a couple of others as well, including his son, who we who we meet very briefly in this episode. There's a character who shows up here when Rhaenyra is in the tent, and um, all these women are talking about the Stepstones and what's happening there. And this man comes up to the group, uh, and he says, uh, the gods didn't make me fit for hunting. Can I sit with you? He has a club foot. His name is uh, Laris Clubfoot is this character. He is the son of Lionel Strong, just to set this guy up. Uh, yeah, keep an eye on him. Not, yeah, not, not, having, not having book knowledge, it does seem like the way he was introduced, uh, he will become a player that we should pay attention to. Yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, I think that this is, this, is a, this is a very compelling character that is entering the game right now in a, in a really quiet introduction. Um, but to, to say, uh, to be continued with this guy, I think, uh, you know, not spoiling too much. He's, he's got a kind of um, interesting arrival here, and he's going he's gonna to have a really big role to play in a lot of what's coming up next. So I'm very excited to see how the show handles him. There's another uh, really quick uh, thing that perked my ears as a book reader here, Hillary. There's this conversation that's happening where these women are mentioning someone named Joanna Swan, who is a character from uh, who is a character from the book, barely uh, from from Fire and Blood, uh, is mentioned as one of these people who gets um, she is captured during the crab feeders reign over the Stepstones. Uh, George R. R. Martin writes about how uh, she was being held for ransom 
but her uncle doesn't want to pay the ransom, so she ends up getting sold to a pillow house in Lease, one of the, the three cities that is uh, potentially uh, funding the crab feeder. Uh, and George R. R. Martin writes that she rose to become the celebrated courtesan uh, known as the Black Swan, a ruler of Lease in all but name. And then he writes, alas, her tale, however fascinating, has no bearing upon our present history. It never writes about her again, uh, as far that as I remember. admirable restraint for George R. R. Martin, who I feel like never met a digression that he couldn't follow. I feel like that is a moment of him very like clearly in the text checking himself. It's like, can't do this, George. No, we have a story to tell. Uh, so I thought it was funny to get the aside here and, and who knows if it's going to come to bear on what's happening in House of the Dragon. It's already expanding on uh, Fire and Blood in ways that I didn't expect. So you never know. She could she could come to, to play in, in, in some capacity. Um, but Rhaenyra is over here uh, listening in and, and speaking with everybody. And they're talking about how we're at war, whether we want to admit it or not. We've been dragged into it by Damon and the Sea Snake. We have to do something to, uh, to get out of this. So this will be a running theme throughout the episode. Outside of the tent, Rhaenyra meets Jason Lannister, who is just throwing it all out there, Hillary. Uh, just making it really clear uh, his intentions for the princess. Shoot your shot, buddy. What do, you, what do you have to lose? <laughs> like, I might not be on the show for long. Uh, so I really have to just, you know, while I'm here, I have to make my presence known. I guess if he's not on the show for long, there's another Lannister twin. And even then, maybe uh, the actor could score a fourth Westeros uh, character. <laughs> Anything possible. is possible. Yeah, it mm-hmm. does. It does. Uh, it's sort of funny to see like Lannisters were always Lannisters, I guess, even 200 years before we meet the ones that we meet on Game of Thrones. Do you feel like uh, this character is living up to the Lannister title as our first Lan- like our first really prominent Lannister on the show so far at the very Yeah, least? I think so. He's he's yeah. confident. Uh, yeah. He's uh, cocky even. Um, he certainly has the aura of like, I'm a rich guy who gets what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll build you a dragon pit. That's not a problem. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a big flex. Um, like Rainier, my, my casterly rock is so huge. I think that, that was a large yeah, part of the conversation. Yeah. Let's not get into a castle measuring competition here. <laughs> uh, so Rhaenyra is going to not take kindly to this, and she is going to march right up to her father and say, "So this is why I'm here, uh, because you're just you're looking at me as a prize to be won." Uh, they get into a pretty big spat, pretty public. Uh, Viserys kind of claps back at her, like, "Even I am not above tradition." Otto Hightower, King of Subtlety, has to show up, or Hand of the King of Subtlety, I suppose, uh, shows up and says, you can't be doing this right now. This is too public. Uh, She marches off. She goes off uh, towards the woods, and she is going to uh, leave in in this huff, and Sir Kristen Cole is going to be following her for them to have their own little side adventure for the rest of this episode. And, you know, you you feel for her, but I also have to wonder, like, we've... We, she's she's part of this world. She grew up in this world. She must know that her getting married is kind of what she is supposed to do. There was the you know she had that whole conversation with her mother right before she died about how you know the the women's the woman's battlefield is the childbed and you know this is what women do in this patriarch patriarchal society. Like I I feel like it's a little it's maybe a little less than believable that she would be so resistant to the idea that she has to get married. I think you seized on something really interesting earlier when you talked about how it felt like uh, there was this moment in time that was frozen between Rhaenyra and Allison. that they're both 17 at this point in the show now, um, but there are ways in which they feel younger still. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I I wonder about that. I wonder, you know, how much did that betrayal both from, you know, uh, at least from her vantage point, her best friend betraying her, certainly a big argument that her father is betraying her trust uh, by by marrying Allison. How much did that, you know, in such rapid succession with the death of her mother, too, how much did that stunt things? How much did that just freeze a moment in time for her that she's having a hard time, even with all of her dragon power thawing? Um, I think that that's that there's a there's an element of that that's happening with Rhaenyra and whether or not some progress is made uh, between her and her father by the end of this episode. It certainly seems like they leave this one on better terms than they left the last one at the very least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I'm sure there will be another time jump between this and the next episode, and we'll have seen some sort of some sort of greater growth. Although I don't yes. know, maybe not. If past is prologue, I suppose. Um, 
So we are going to uh, we're going to see that Kristen, Cole, and Rhaenyra they're going to be bonding in the woods. Uh, Kristen wants to just head right back to camp now that he's caught up with her, but she wants to keep walking. It's a beautiful day in the Kingswood, so they are going to do that. Sir Kristen Cole is talking about how he uh, he is going to he has as much success as anyone from his family is ever going to see. Uh, that he was you know uh, a common he was from common stock. Uh, he has been elevated to a position on the king's guard uh and this is all thanks to rhaenyra's power so he tells her that if you're thinking you're powerless i would hardly call you powerless so it's it's a really big moment for sir Kristen cole getting to kind of bear his soul to to this person here which is kind of uh you know not really something that you expect from a member of the king's guard they're supposed to really be kind of sturdy strong silent types i don't know if you're getting any major takes on Kristen cole starting to develop for you hillary I mean, I think I'm getting the major take that he and Rhaenyra are uh, headed toward a boar hunt of their own, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I believe I am picking up on the subtext. Uh, the vibes are not super subtle. Yeah, yeah. Neither of them particularly with much chill in, in this regard. Uh, meanwhile, the hunt is continuing as Viserys is being told that there is this white heart stag somewhere in the Kingswood that is being tracked. Uh, and so this is this very majestic deer that um, he is being told that before you and your dragons showed up, this was the animal. This was the one. This was a symbol of royalty in these lands. And again, uh, not so subtle, Otto Hightower being like, oh, well, if there's ever been a sign that something that a regal symbol is showing up on your son's name day. Who happens to be my grandson, but we don't have to talk about that. You know, and Viserys just like kind of pats him on the shoulder. He's kind of like, I know I'm pretty dense, but I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh, We could just (laughs) put this aside for now. It would be great. Um, So that's going to be a big theme of the episode as well. Uh, Jason Lannister is going to also be not so subtle in his overtures for Rhaenyra when he comes to talk to Viserys. He has this spear that he is going to hand over. It's a spear for Prince Aegon. It was crafted at Casterly Rock. Uh, hopefully, uh, Viserys, you will get to use this in your killing stroke against the White Heart. Um, and he's talking about how I'm, I would be a great husband to Rhaenyra. Casterly Rock is a splendid seat. She could take her place by my side without shame and feel well compensated for her loss in station. And this seems like a really big moment, Hillary, for Viserys of kind of cracking. Oh, so people just automatically think I'm going to put my son on the Iron Throne, and they have all seemingly forgotten that they've pledged loyalty to my daughter, the heir to the Iron Throne. Yeah, um, and uh, I I will say that he is he is painted generally as being sort of weak, sort of ineffectual. Maybe maybe that's the that's not a very charitable reading of him, but that he is sort of uh, Ned Starkian in that he is loyal and maybe not really made for these sorts of machinations because he's just kind of like a stand-up guy um, and doesn't want to kind of get down in the muck in the way that he might have to in order to really succeed. But to his credit, he is he winds up resisting all of these various uh, attempts to get him to name Aegon over Rhaenyra, which is actually sort of a surprise. I think it is as well. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people uh, whether or not it's going to be enough, you know, to to whether it's uh, a good decision is another right. conversation. Also a conversation and I think also, <laughs> you know, is this is this going to be enough to endear Viserys to to people who are pretty out on Viserys? I don't I don't know if that exists on on this show, but I I think that this is an episode that shows a a lot more of his um his internal thinking and 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 what's going on inside of him in this, and his, you know, what his version of integrity is right. also. Right. And I, and I think what he's been what he's been living with, you know, just to, to get a little bit ahead of it, you know, he's going to have this conversation with Otto who says, oh, well, the real match would be to marry Rhaenyra to, to your two year old son. That's going to solve all the problems. And even Viserys has to crack up at that. He's like, that's ridiculous. Absolutely not. No way. <laughs> and especially just leaving aside the absurdity of a two year old getting betrothed or married or whatever, like the just also won't work out if you want to have more heirs right right um so he's uh you know we'd have to be very patient i think uh you know <laughs> it's gonna be a, a while yeah it's gonna be a minute uh, <laughs> another time jump please yeah uh <laughs> so i don't know how quickly they can order one of those but lionel strong is is here to give his take on it as well he's gonna say you know you you once came to me to to ask about uh this very situation for yourself 
I do not think it is too late for you to to merge houses with House Valerion. Uh, you could marry Rhaenyra to Sir Laenor. He's of pure Valyrian descent. It would be all the same reasons that you would have married uh, uh, his sister Lena as well. Uh, and Viserys, it seems like he he takes that for what it's worth, but he just doesn't want to have this conversation at all anymore. And the next time we see him, he's beside this fire. Alicent shows up. And he's pretty, you know, to the wind at this point. You know, he's been drinking all night long. And I think this is where you get his version of the truth, like what he has been living with these past three and a half years of, I had this dream. There is this long tradition of Targaryens who are dreamers. This is how we evaded certain doom in Valyria because we had someone who foresaw that and we left. Um, And Aegon the Conqueror is this dreamer we have learned in this show. And Viserys thinks that maybe he is one as well, even though it's very rare within the Targaryen line, that he saw this dream of his son born with the Conqueror's crown. Um, And when his wife died and when his son died, he kind of let go of that dream and also uh, became very resentful of himself, I think, uh, of being so obsessed, being so focused on that having to happen because he is so focused on manifesting this vision of his that he lost sight of so much and his wife is dead and his child is dead. And he hoped that Rhaenyra becoming the heir to the Iron Throne would be somewhat helpful in righting a wrong. Um, And not only has that not really taken for him, it sounds like he also, at least in this moment, Hillary, it seems like he is having second thoughts about Rhaenyra coming to the throne. He's looking at Alice and being like, I never thought I would remarry and I never thought I would have a son. So what if I was wrong about anointing Rhaenyra and my dream actually was correct? Yes, it's a very tortured fireside confession. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how, how people are feeling about Viserys after this episode. I think it's, it's revealing at least of his character and his perspective. Uh, and I think adding, um, I think adding some, some additional shades to the character that, are, that are, are worth bringing into the conversation about this guy and how he is as a ruler and how he is as a person. Uh, you know, complicated character. It's Game of Thrones. That's how And also, I, I'm curious about how, you know, if, if his vision is in fact a vision or a prophecy and how mm-hmm. that kind of plays into what we see going forward. Yeah, because objectively, the Targaryens have had uh, prophecies come true. Uh, you know, the, the Doom of Illyria, that happens. Uh, the, the White Walker threat absolutely is real. They're just 300 or so years off in their timing. Uh, so is Viserys a dreamer? Did he see something? Uh, I think we'll have to we'll have to keep watching to see how that bears out. How about how it stags out uh, as we are gonna <laughs> oh, go? Oh, that was terrible. So sorry, <laughs> so sorry. It's not my worst. Trust me, uh, it has gotten a lot worse than that over time. Uh, as we are gonna go on the hunt, uh, and we are going to see that the stag that they have been tracking was not the White Heart. It is a very large deer, but it is not the one that is associated with all of this royalty here in the Kingswood. Uh, And I thought that this was such an evocative scene for me, that here you have a Targaryen king using uh, the weapon of the Lannister house that is going to help bring the Targaryens down, slaying the avatar of House Baratheon that the Lannisters are also going to help ring down it just brought me back to the mad king and king robert all of this imagery i thought was uh was really really cool in the context of game of thrones yeah totally um and i also was getting shades of i i can't remember which season it's from but uh when catelyn stark's father dies and he's uh go like going down the river on his like uh his funeral barge and her brother is trying to send a fiery (laughs) arrow to it but like can't make the shot and right. how this, it takes Viserys a couple of t- a couple of chances or a couple of times to finally kill the stag like that also felt those two scenes kind of felt coupled too in that like this is kind of an ineffectual man when all is said and done even though he's trying his best. Yeah, I think like you know like sort of like heaving with effort, you know, hung over beyond belief probably. Just and he the, can't the, quite get the knife yes. in. Yeah, exactly. I thought I thought it was really really great. I think uh, this is this is a scene that I'll be thinking about a lot uh, coming out of this episode for sure. Um, meanwhile, it turns out we know where the White Heart is because it is by Rhaenyra and Sir Criston. Uh, we kind of yada yada past this. There's a boar in the night uh, that they have to they have to fight. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a forgettable moment for me. I don't know if you had any major takes on the on the boar that comes after Rhaenyra and Criston. Seems like it was just kind of you know we need a moment that's exciting at this moment in time in the episode. 
They were like, we have a couple, like we have a budget for another yeah. CGI monster, so yeah. let's just let's make it a bit, let's make it a pig. We've got like two minutes we could add to the show if we want to put a boar <laughs> in the show. Uh, you know, I guess there's something about, you know, uh, Rhaenyra uh, was able to survive a boar encounter where Robert Baratheon was not. I don't know if there's anything to, to read into and that. And we do see her. We do see her in action being a lot more decisive about slaying an animal than her father was. Yeah. You're seeing her streaked in red, right? She is, uh, you know, uh, covered in the blood it kind of, of her of enemy. Like she had, yeah, it kind of looked like she had manic panic. Uh, mm-hmm. at the end with yeah the blood of the boar in her hair yeah and i i think um not uh not for the last time we will see a targaryen covered in uh, the gore of their enemy in this episode so maybe so the nice just thing about way. the light blonde is that it really shows <laughs> it catches the yeah, viscera sure <laughs> yeah really really good for uh for the camera uh, but no, here's the White Heart. So this is the one that uh, that they were all tracking and they were hoping to see and that it would signal um, this is a good omen for uh, anointing Aegon as your heir. And instead, it's here with Rhaenyra in this moment where Kristen is maybe going to approach it and either scare it off or try to kill it. And instead, she tells him to put the sword away and they just share this look and then the stag runs off. Um, I don't know how, had, how you read if this they one. Had killed, I wonder if, if they had killed it and hauled it back to the camp, would that have convinced anybody that she is, in fact, the rightful heir and maybe they oh. could have all left her alone a little bit? So this is maybe a moment where mercy was the wrong way to go. Well, if you're being cynical. Yes. Uh, well, Which Game nobody on Game of Thrones ever is. <laughs> yes. So. Very, very upbeat, very optimistic show. Just super positive all the time. <laughs> really uh, thinks that at heart people are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at their core, uh, humans fundamentally uh, just uh, really care about each other quite a bit, more than anything else. Uh, so, no, they, they let it go. But it's, it's, this, it's at least it's this private moment uh, for Rhaenyra to be acknowledged by this stag. It is witnessed by no one else other than Sir Kristen. And, uh, you know, um, what to take from that moving forward. I really I latched on to that. I think that this is, uh, this is something that... Uh, Many a many a many a mind uh, should be should be thinking about as you're trying to puzzle out what's next on House of the Dragon. I really enjoyed that scene quite a bit. Um, they come back to the camp. Uh, they bring the pig back. That's exciting, but it's kind of an awkward homecoming. We don't really get to see the immediate aftermath uh, of her being back. Uh, in no time at all, we are back in King's Landing. In fact, uh, and we have yet another one of these scenes. It seems mandatory at this point, Hillary, that we have to have a scene every episode of Otto being a super creep with his daughter. Uh, you know, just a private moment with Otto and Allison of him really putting the pressure on her of, okay, so you've married the king, you have procreated with the king, and now you have a son with the king, and that son shall also be the king, and everything's going to be great. And Allison's like, I am not so sure that that's the direction that this is going to go in. Uh, Rainier would be a really good queen, by the way. And Otto is really stepping in uh, because the patriarchy needs some defense at this moment in time, Hillary. Otto really has to come and back up his boy. Yeah, it's really in danger of crumbling at any moment Mm -hmm. if they don't nip this threat in the bud. Yeah, it's the law of gods and men for a reason. Triple underline men there, Allison. Come on. (laughs) Uh, So he's really, you know, laying it on pretty thick. Uh, And he's saying Viserys will listen to reason, but he'll never find reason on his own. You need to guide him. So uh, I think getting this verbalized from Otto, the way that he kind of really feels about the king, not that it was hard to pick up on, again, not quite the master of subtlety, uh, Otto Hightower, I think helpful at the very least to get that out there in language on the show. He does not seem to have a ton of respect for Viserys as a decision maker. Oh, yeah, for for sure. He is. He's a Jafar figure. <laughs> oh, yeah. No doubt. I hope he has a music number by the end of uh, by the end of this one when he sends a uh, Mager's hold up into the air and sends it to the ends of the earth. Um, Allison's going to come to Viserys, and instead of talking to him about uh, how their child together should be the heir to the Iron Throne, she instead pushes Viserys towards a different decision uh, that she is going to, you know, see that he has received a letter from uh, the Stepstones and how the war is going very poorly. And she is basically going to say, why are you leaving your brother out on the lurch? Uh, I know that you don't want to, you know, you're, you're not in a great place with Damon. I know that you feel like it would be weak to go back on. Uh, you haven't supported the war up to this point. But is it better for the realm if the crab feeder is still alive? Or is it better for the realm if the crab feeder is dead? And Viserys says, that's a great point. I'm going to send help. 
Uh, so Allison is showing up to guide Viserys towards a decision. It's just completely different from anything that Otto has in mind for her. So I, I thought that this was a really compelling moment from Allison as a character, one of her first real acts as queen that we've gotten to see. Yeah, and it's a, I think it's a more interesting choice to not make her this like very conniving uh, figure that she does have loyalty to her friend, that she is not just kind of looking out for herself and her family's interests. Um, we've, you know, there are plenty of characters like that in this universe. Um, and I don't know, you would maybe expect a a girl who kind of maneuvered into becoming queen to be that way. Um, but she isn't. No, um, she is not. So she is uh, guiding Viserys towards that decision. Uh, when we next see Viserys, he is at the small council. He is finalizing the details of that. He's going to be sending, uh, I think we hear 2,000 men he's going to be sending to the Stepstones. Or are going to be very confused when they get there in a few weeks and find out that the Crabfeeder has just been decapitated already. So, uh, like, well, all this travel for nothing? Do we still get paid? Uh, <laughs> so Viserys is going to talk to Rhaenyra here instead, and they're going to kind of uh, recap their journeys through this episode and, and try to you know, find a bridge between their two perspectives and he is effectively going to tell her, I know that you think that I am passing you over. I am not. But you do need to get married. Uh, you must marry, he says. Strengthen your own claim. Shore up your succession. Multiply. Uh, as to your match, make it yourself. Search him out. Find one that pleases you as I did. Um, so he is uh, leaving her with the marching orders of it's you need to get married if you're going to secure your claim to the Iron Throne, but don't let me force the match upon you. You get to to pick it yourself. Which I guess it feels like, you know, a compromise that one could live with. It's better than coming to her and being like, so listen, you're going to marry your two year old brother. <laughs> Certainly better than that. Uh, if, if these are if these are the two options. <laughs> Look, if you want to marry your two-year-old brother, that's between you and your two-year-old brother. But I am not going to force that on you. Won't be me. Oh Won't man, me. I I don't know who would who would choose a two-year-old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you would be you would be cleaning up after him a lot. Um, yeah, tough deal. Tough deal. Uh, he does tell her. He says, uh, "You're not totally wrong." He says, "I I did waver at one time." But I swear to you now on your mother's memory, you will not be supplanted. So how are you taking this from Viserys, Hillary? He is pretty declaratively telling Rhaenyra in this moment of the two of them together alone, you're the heir to the Iron Throne. You are my choice to sit on this thing when I am gone and I'm not changing my mind. I almost did. I'm not doing it. You're the heir. I mean, unless something changes dramatically, um, I... I it certainly sounds like he thinks this is what's going to happen. I mean, uh, there's still the matter of his uh, rapidly putrefying flesh <laughs> that we didn't really get very much into this right. episode. Do you think that got any better in these three years in this time jump? I think that generally speaking, in the Middle Ages, uh, medicine worked and uh -huh. <laughs> they they knew what to do. And yeah, but, with time, but, ailments got better. Between that and time healing all wounds, I feel like uh, we should be out of the woods on this one. Oh, yeah. He's going to live a long and happy life. I have no <laughs> doubt. No question about it. Um, so that's the end of their storyline. But then we get to this really big final action sequence of the episode. We return to the Stepstones. There's this big dispute about how it's a lost cause and Damon is leading us into, into a certain doom. Uh, and then the king's message arrives and Damon reads the letter and he does not like what he hears. He does not like the offer of help at all. I think he's here because he wants to, whether he wants to prove something to, to his brother or to himself, Hillary, I think he, he does not want this war to be ended due to circumstances that are beyond his calling. Uh, so he's men really would literally, yeah, men would literally turn down 2,000 ships mm -hmm. um, and attack the crab feeder on their own, then go to therapy. Yes, that's right. Uh, so he is going to skip his therapy appointment and instead go alone uh, straight to the crab feeder's doorstep, uh, sword in hand, flag in hand. He is going to draw a bunch of the crab feeder's men to him, tons of archers watching from the distance, ready to go. And I don't know, were you surprised that then Damon just decides to basically do this thing? He's like, okay, I'm just going to go one versus 4,000 right now. This is fine. Sir, 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's what I guess a rash and uh, bold warrior man. It's not out of character. Maybe um, it's a little it's a little uh, insane that he manages to avoid somehow any kind of major injury um, when he's the only person against an entire army. But, you know, it's Matt Smith. I didn't think he was going to die this soon in the season. I had to I had to do some math here and I had to watch this a couple of times because I just I needed to make sure I got this right. So it's about 55 minutes and 42 seconds into the episode when the fighting starts uh, during this scene. Uh, And in between that and 57 minutes and around 19 seconds, that's when Damon gets uh, shot with a couple of arrows and his run is ended. He kills 16 people in that period of time, Uh, 16 individuals. He at least makes. Uh, extreme physical contact with, if not all the way, kills. That's and so- no dragon, just him and a sword. Just him and Dark Sister, uh, a great, uh, you know, uh, ancestral Valyrian sword that people are really excited about being here on the show. It's just him and his sword, and that's it. And he takes down, uh, it's either 15 or 16. I couldn't confirm the 16th kill, Hillary, but I think that it's 16 people that he takes down before he is shot by arrows and it is, uh, it is, it is wild. Uh, it, is a, it is a very wild scene. And eventually, he's joined in the fight by, uh, by all of his allies. We see, uh, uh, we see the, the arrival of Sea Smoke, a, a new dragon to the show that we have not seen previously here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Lord Lanor's uh, dragon. Sir Lanor, my apologies. Uh, this is his dragon uh, that we are seeing not for the last time, I am sure. Uh, and that firepower and the arrival of the sea snake and everybody fuels Damon with enough time to, I guess, uh, either quickly heal from or at the very <laughs> least uh, ignore the three arrows uh, imbued within his body to go and chase down the crab feeder and just end this thing off screen. Uh, yeah, to- and just cut him in half. That's how you do it, I guess, uh, every once in a while. Uh, so he, uh, yeah, if you've he, been to Baltimore, you know that that's how you eat a crab. That's how you, is that right? <laughs> I've been doing it wrong. Uh, so yeah, he comes back covered in crab feeder guts, and the war is over, and that's it. That's not just uh, the episode, but that's the war and the stepstones. Much ado about uh, crabs, I suppose. Yeah, I can't say I'm sorry to see. I sure hope that that's the end. Um, I can't say I'm sorry to see it go. I'm curious about what this means for Damon now. Um, yeah. There was there was a lot of hay made in the first episode about how none of these men have ever seen war um, because there's been peace for so long. So I wonder if this uh, this fight is going to change the way that people act in their you know civilian lives. Yeah, I think I think that the like the aftermath of this is probably the most important part of it. Damon has, uh, you know, is is presumably going to emerge from this in a fairly legendary capacity. I think the 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 stories that could be told of what he did here in the Stepstones are probably going to travel far and wide. And uh, I don't even know how you exaggerate what he did because we saw what he did, and uh, I don't know I don't know how you tell a taller tale than what actually literally happened. Um, but I think that the aftermath of that and what does this do for um, the sea snake and his relationship to the throne, considering that Viserys was at the very least willing to send help that he almost did. Is that going to move the needle on their relationship at all? I think it is it is all of the the falling action from the from the war in the stepstones that's going to fuel what comes next rather than the war in the stepstones itself being the major thing. So mm-hmm. I don't that, feel and, that uh, Lenor Lenor on that dragon looks pretty cool. So I feel like Renera should probably consider him again, even though yeah, if if he's her cousin. If only she'd been there, you know, uh, to, to see it herself. Uh, but yeah, uh, Lenor was was pretty awesome uh, on that day. And Sea Smoke looked great. That was that was really fun to, to see uh, yet another dragon in action. So we had to wait three weeks to see dragons in battle, but we got two dragon battles for the price of one. Uh, so pretty exciting stuff. Hillary, we've got some feedback from the Still Watching listeners. Of course, you can send your feedback in stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Um, the first question we got, Hillary, uh, this was from, from Bridget. Um, Bridget had written in and said, if females are a big part of this series, I find it odd there are no female co-EPs with Miguel Sapochnik and Ryan Condal. Game of Thrones showcased a lot of female directors, so I find it odd that this show wouldn't continue that trend especially if women are going to be the main focus. Um, I think that this email came our way, Hillary, before the news dropped this week. Really explosive, surprising news 
that Miguel Sapochnik, who is a longtime veteran of the Game of Thrones franchise, has helmed so many of the most notable uh, episodes of Game of Thrones, from Hard Home to uh, the Battle of the Bastards, the Winds of Winter, and yes, even the one you couldn't see, The Long Night, uh, was a, a co-showrunner on season one of House of the Dragon, directed numerous episodes of the season. He has walked away uh, from those responsibilities, will not be returning for season two. Uh, so he has left. There is just Ryan Condal left as showrunner with George R. R. Martin as executive producer. Did you were you surprised by this? this? I mean, I don't. That's a dumb question, Hillary. It was very surprising news. I don't know how you're not surprised. Oh, by yeah, it. it's it's a hugely surprising thing to hear, especially coming on the heels of how successful the show has been so far, how it's broken records and, you know, got renewed. I mean, I guess there wasn't any question really that it would get renewed, but that it got renewed right away, that the numbers have been so good. Um, it. It does seem, reading the reports about uh, why he's stepping away, that perhaps Miguel Sapochnik was is just exhausted because it's very difficult and uh, cumbersome to make a show like this. Um, yes. Which you know, and after years of development and everything, like I, I feel like I don't know if it seems like there's anything like weird going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. I can very much understand if it's just like this is an enormous undertaking and I want to focus on something else. Um, I don't know what what was your impression of kind of like between the lines, I guess. My my feeling was very much in line with this idea of take a nap, man. You've done a lot. <laughs> you know, you've done so much uh, for, for this franchise that I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the reporting leading up to House of the Dragon, even interviews with Miguel Sapochnik. There was the big sprawling Hollywood reporter profile on the making of the show uh, that I think Miguel Sapochnik was pretty clear that this wasn't an easy yes for, for him to come back at all. I think specifically the long night episode of the final season of Game of Thrones, in addition to being, you know, kind of ruthlessly received by a lot of people, whether fairly or unfairly, depending on your complaints, uh, was just grueling to make. Uh, and it's only been a few years since that episode aired and much sooner since, you know, Miguel Sapochnik is called back to Westeros to start making episodes again. Um, so I think this is a pretty all-encompassing job uh, when you are in a showrunner capacity here on House of the Dragon, when you are directing uh, shows within a Game of Thrones uh, TV series um, that I, I it is hard for me to to not sympathize with the person who's like, I don't think I need to be doing this anymore. Yeah, if you're um, not if you're not feeling all in, then why put yourself yeah. through it? And, you know, I, I think that HBO uh, simultaneously announcing that Alan Taylor, who has directed a ton of Game of Thrones in the past, is returning to the franchise. I, I feel like it, it, it I received it sort of as a, well, don't worry, we've got, you know, we've got another really familiar director who, who is coming back. He directed Baylor, a bunch of other episodes, uh, has killed so many people on HBO in the past. <laughs> so he is right at home here. Um, like, that's great. I'm, I'm excited. But. This this episode uh, was uh, was directed by uh, Greg Gitanis. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, who has uh, directed a ton of television? Has directed a few of my favorite episodes of Lost. Uh, was was very excited to see how involved he was in this show. And he directed last week as well. Very cinematic episodes of the show. So I feel like Sapochnik's contributions are still going to continue to be felt here. Um, and I'm I'm excited about about that. Uh, as far as the directors here, at the very least, in season one of House of the Dragon, we will be seeing episodes from Claire Kilner coming up as well. Uh, Gita V. Patel is also coming up. So uh, that's episodes four, five, eight, and nine who are going to be coming from uh, two non-male uh, directors. So I don't know if that is uh, if that's sufficient. Uh, certainly, you know, we've got a long way to go still. Um, but yeah, uh, I am a little curious. Point. Yeah, if if Miguel Sapochnik's departure does make any more room, yeah. kind of if, in a trickle down way or in a more you know overt way for another female producer. I mean, just given the given the conversation about violence against women and you know the birth scene and everything from like the get go here, which seems to maybe have caught the show by surprise a little bit. Like it, it definitely feels that way. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be a bad thing to have more non-men at the top. I would have I would have been pretty excited if that announcement came, you know, hand in hand with something like Michelle McLaren is going to right. be involved. She had directed Game of Thrones previous episodes, you know, like that that would be really, really exciting. But I, I think to your point, especially of being caught a little by surprise, I think a lot of the criticism about 
that scene in the first episode. We got a, a good amount of feedback about that. Actually, Hillary, uh, Amelia had written in with thoughts about that. Katrin had written in with thoughts about that. Um, Katrin's point, just to distill it, uh, was the, the scene gave me a sense that the show is trying to be about feminism, but may not be in touch with its female audience. And I'm quote unquote, still watching. Uh, I love the complicated characters they're already setting up and the dragons look so cool, but it was a really cringy moment for me. Um, that I think a lot of the the reactions from the people involved with the show have been drawing uh, a fair share of criticism here. Um, being your first appearance here on the podcast, Hillary, I don't know if you had uh, any strong takes about the C-section scene from the first episode, the way that violence towards women, both you know, literal physical violence, emotional and institutional violence, how that's being depicted, how that's living with you. Well, it is probably a valid data point to note right now that I happen to be nine months pregnant. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and so given that... Uh, I do not I... envy you having to edit material surrounding <laughs> this show and reading into it and everything. I always I was, dread sending yes. you a recap, Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was warned ahead of time that it was going to be there. If I hadn't known it was coming, I think I would have been pretty upset. I will say yes. that. Um, yep. It's it's a tough scene to watch. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with what some of our listeners have said that, you know, it had good intentions, um, but sort of felt still felt like it wasn't really it wasn't really necessary. Like, did we have to see everything we saw? Did we have to hear her tortured screams? Like, I don't know, kind of kind of made me think back to, you know, Sansa's rape on game of thrones um where it kind of felt like they were trying to the show was trying to skirt criticism by not showing it by showing it but like keeping the camera trained on theon watching her right. instead but then of course the complaint is well why is it about him so it's it's sort it's it's tricky it's not like there's really a right way to show these things and i guess the effort to show them to show women suffering in different ways is in some ways admirable um, that at least we're not kind of seeing the same sorts of violence that it's it's making a point that, you know, every day their everyday lives are just kind of filled with these, you know, this potential for tragedy at every turn. But like, I do think that the point can probably be made without being as graphic, at least as that scene was. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um this came our way from from Mickey. Um, we had last week on the podcast, Richard and I had put out the call for what everyone was thinking about Viserys and Alicent uh, as a new couple here, the new it couple in Westeros. <laughs> what they, power what they couple. were, yeah, I suppose, and and what they were thinking about the the power dynamics within that specifically. Uh, and so this came uh, to our, our our feed from from Mickey. Mickey wrote in and said, "I had thoughts about King Viserys and Alicent." In your discussion on the podcast, you wondered if Allison was on board with the romance with King. In my point of view as a female, my impression from both episodes is that the decision to continue to befriend the King and have these secret conversations was all to obey her father. In episode two, her father asks her if she will still visit the King that evening, and her response is very unenthusiastic, if you wish me to. She picks her nails constantly when, with the, when the King is even um, saying all the things he wants to hear. I'm pretty sure she reports each encounter to her father afterwards. I think the king has affection for Allison, but as far as she's concerned, I see no love or Stockholm syndrome, just a daughter obeying her dad's skeezy orders to sleep with someone so that her family could gain some power. Um, so we are on the other side, obviously, of episode two. We are three years on the other side of episode two, believe it or not. Hillary, how did this episode move things forward for you at all regarding Allison now that we have her at the age of 17, now that we have her as the mother of Viserys' child, in addition to, to being the queen, are you reading her any differently than you read her in episodes one and two? Yeah, I mean, I think her decision to not push for Aegon, but to push for Viserys to send aid to Daemon um, feels, felt like, you know, kind of a big decisive moment for her stepping out from under what her father wants and kind of being a queen on her own terms. Like, she's clearly been forced into this position. I don't think that there's any question that she wanted to marry her her friend's father when she was 15. Um, but it seems like she's starting to figure out a way to navigate this position in a way like her, you know, on her own terms. Yep. Um, one last one for you. This is about a character who wasn't in this episode, but I would love to get your take on. Uh, this is from Brandon. 
Brandon said, my question is regarding Princess Rainey's. Uh, do you all think there's a conflict between the king and her husband that if, if, if there is, that she would stay loyal to the Targaryens? Or would she choose her husband's side or possibly use the conflict as her chance to take another shot at the Iron Throne? Curious on your thoughts. She's the most interesting character to me so far, raising a glass to the queen that never was. Uh, Hillary, are you vibing with the queen that never was the way that I feel like the House of the Dragon internet is vibing with the queen that never oh, was? Oh, yeah. She seems like For a real sure. crowd favorite so far. Yeah, I want to I see more of her. I want to know more of her whole deal. I think it's too soon to really tell. Uh, but I'm definitely interested and definitely keeping an eye on her. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. Uh, she's she's terrific, and I think a, a very exciting character that they have uh, they've done a really good job with in the limited use of her so far. But I'm I'm really curious to see how she continues to shake out as she continues to be involved in the series. That's gonna do it for us on still watching this week. Uh, as a reminder, we would love to hear from you. Still watching pod at gmail.com is our email address. Still watching pod at gmail.com. Write in any thoughts that you have about episode three, predictions for the rest of the season. We would love to hear all of that from you out there. Um, Hillary, uh, thank you so much for being on here. This was really, really fun for me. I'm so glad that we got the chance to do this. Yeah, me too. Before I disappear into the night. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, before you disappear into the night, where can folks find you on the internet? Uh, They can find me on Twitter at Hillabuster. It's a pun. Uh Uh-huh. I like it. Very, very (laughs) good. I thought you might. Uh, I love it. Um... Okay, well, you can find me. I am on Twitter at Round Howard. I am, of course, here at VF.com each and every week recapping House of the Dragon, including next week. We will return to discuss episode four of this series. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye-bye.